Um, good morning, church. Um, would you stand with me in reverence to hearing God's word? It's from Mark, uh, the 14th chapter, 66 to 72 are the verses. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and she said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither nor know nor I understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of God. I don't know how far this principle can be applied, but I know it can be applied to a number of uh, circumstances and situations. Um, and it's this idea that sometimes we, we're not particularly useful until we've been broken by something. Um, maybe this isn't a hyper-serious example of it, but one that comes to mind is there's just this adage, and I experienced it in myself, uh, where, you know, standard, standard way for people to enter vocational ministry is to go and get a seminary degree, right? You go and you study the Bible for a few years, get, get, a, get a credential, a qualification, and uh, there's just this adage for people who've been working in churches for a long time, especially it's, it's been borne out by like hiring people fresh out of seminary or Bible school or whatever, that there's almost like this two-year to three-year detox period that people need to come out of that program to actually be able to talk and relate and pastor like a human being, you know? It's just this idea that like you, come, you get all this head knowledge, you get all of this theology, you get all of this, uh, all these tools, you get all this, you know, a, maybe perhaps a tight grid for understanding the world and understanding your Bible, understanding God, understanding human problems. And then you come into contact with the richly varied, complicated mess of actual situations that you didn't think through, that you have no experience with, that there is no direct Bible verse about, and you're suddenly left with like, oh my goodness. And if you're sensitive, and if you're wise, you will be humbled by that, and you will take that in, and of course you still want to think biblically and theologically about these issues, but you'll realize how much further you have to go. You'll be able to call a spade a spade whenever you encounter something that's like this. I was not prepared for this. And you'll respond slowly and carefully. Uh, tragically, many people, they, they, they don't. They, they get into these situations and they just bulldoze on through as if, uh, as if they do have the answers for everything. I think this happens in all kinds of fields. It happens in all kinds of uh, environments. You have to come to a point where you genuinely hit your limits, 
where you are genuinely shown that you don't have all the answers. You're genuinely shown that uh, things are just more complicated. And more than that, that you yourself are weaker than you probably presumed or thought you would be. What we, what we see in this passage uh, that Deborah read for us is Peter having one of these such moments. Peter, the, the appointed by Jesus leader amongst the 12 disciples, the inner core of his, his sort of leadership team or whatever, uh, Peter himself, the one who would go on, as we're going to read about, to, to be the most significant and substantial voice in the earliest church, he enters this moment here uh, in this exact kind of blind spot, this exact kind of weakness. Peter had yet to be fully and thoroughly broken in the way that would actually make him useful for what Jesus had for him. Um, this story, is, it's sad, uh, but it also has so much to teach each of us about what it means to follow Jesus with greater faithfulness today. So let's pray, and then let's jump into this thing and see what it has for us. Father, um, we need this. We need this, Lord, especially those of us in this room that have been following Jesus for a long time uh, and have maybe become a little bit comfortable and a little bit complacent in our discipleship. We need the corrective of this teaching. Father, maybe also on the flip side, those of us that are, that are brand new to our faith and, and just fresh and uh, everything is new and exciting, Father, we also need the corrective of this teaching. Lord, we don't seek after sin. We don't seek after failure. We don't seek to abandon you. We don't seek to, to break our promises and our goals and our dreams as it relates to following you with faithfulness, of course. But Father, when we do fail, Lord, we pray that we would be the kinds of people that can be shaped and formed by those failures to be even better than we were and we know the key to that is your, your grace. It's always waiting for us there on the other side. So make those things clear this morning, Lord. Change us. Let your word do its work. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, this story is in some ways a thematic repeat. If you've been following along with us in Mark, uh, just a few weeks ago, we, we heard the story that on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, this was the same night, Mark is zooming in on this last night of Jesus' life here. Uh, all these stories are taking place just hours apart from one another here in chapter 14. But Jesus was walking with the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to have that breakdown moment, that last moment of freedom in prayer with his father. And as they're walking over there, Jesus just kind of nonchalantly brings up, hey, tonight, you're all going to betray me. Not betray, the word is abandon. You are all going to stop following me. You're going to fall away. When the chips are down, right now, in the, in the comfort of like this holy huddle that we've got here, these quiet moments, you're, you're close and you're, you're all ready to kind of confess your love for me and your, your, your dedication to me, but when the chips fall, when they're down, when things turn, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to fall away. And Peter, Peter is the one that at Voices specifically challenged him, said, Jesus, you don't understand. I would never fall away. He even throws the other disciples under the bus. He says, all of them, sure, these guys might. These guys might. I mean, look at them. Look at Andrew over there. He doesn't have the stuff. I would never, Jesus. And Peter tells him, 
or I'm sorry, Jesus tells him, actually, tonight, tonight, this very night, before it even turns to morning, that's the significance of before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter again says, it will not be, I will die with you. I will die with you if it needs to happen before I betray you, before I abandon you, before I leave you. And the story moves on. Well, this very same night, here we go. Here's the story. Jesus, I mean, uh, it's, it's not usually wise to bet against the predictions of the eternal Son of God when he's naming what's about to happen, as Peter did. Turns out Jesus was right. So we get to the story of Peter's denial here, and this story is sandwiched in with the previous story that we looked at last week about Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Remember, we had to kind of just acknowledge it and, and move on. But in the middle of that story, Mark told us, quote, Peter had followed him, he'd followed Jesus, at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. And then it returns to them questioning Jesus and that whole dramatic scene. So the trial of Jesus and the trial of Peter here, so to speak, are meant to be understood in relationship to one another. Mark has weaved these stories in together to make us consider them. Last week, the trial, in the trial of Jesus, we saw just the bold confidence and the determined assertion of truth about himself that Jesus was willing to stand in in the face of this sham trial. Lies were being spoken about him, false claims, all these crazy things. Jesus was able to stand there stone-faced, confidently, silently, and just let them all do their talking and contradict one another and condemn themselves in the process. And then finally, when the high priest has had enough and says, tell us, are you the Messiah and are you the son of the blessed, which is the euphemism for the son of God, Jesus finally gives them a straight answer. This group, for the first time in the gospel, he says, yes, yes, I am. And you're going to see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, seated at the right hand of God. He says, yes, I am. I'm all of these things. I am. So Jesus, in the face of lies, in the face of a corrupt justice system coming down on him, in the face, yes, of violence as they begin to beat him and spit on him and mock him and humiliate him, and yes, his certain death as they condemn him to death at this sham trial. Jesus stands confidently. He stands boldly. He stands faithfully. He stands powerfully. Just outside in the courtyard is Peter. <laughs> is Peter having his own trial of a sort. Peter is following, but he's following at a distance. And I think that phrase, that phrase is evocative, and I think it's probably well chosen. It's chosen to, to capture a little bit more meaning than just geographic, if you catch my drift. G Peter was following at a distance. Yes, it's this physical relationship. G Peter was following behind so that he wouldn't kind of be seen, and he, he wants to kind of be able to keep an eye on Jesus. Uh, I don't know what he's thinking. Maybe he'll intervene or maybe not. I don't know. He just wants, he's, he wants to stay somewhat close, but far enough to not be closely associated with them, of course. But it also speaks to not just that physical reality, but the spiritual reality, I think the spiritual reality just as much, that Peter was following, sure. He'd follow Jesus at some risk into the courtyard of the high priest, but he had intentionally disassociated himself from Jesus to some degree or another. He wanted to be close, but not too close. Not close enough to suffer. Not close enough to suffer.
And you probably know this. You probably heard this. There is something about this kind of half-heartedness that God especially hates. There are all kinds of claims throughout the scripture of like, it would just be better for you to either be all in or all out rather than this sort of half-hearted thing. Of course, the, of course the ultimate better is all in. Think of the words of, of Jesus to the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation. He says, this is one you're probably thinking of. He says, I know your works. You're neither hot, n- neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or, or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. There's something about this sort of, yeah, I'm kind of in, I'm kind of not, yeah, we'll see, I don't know, I'll, I'll be in when it's convenient, that he just, he just hates. And it's for at least two reasons. The first is that, the first is that it devalues the gift of God's presence. I mean, if God is who he says he is, if Jesus is who he says he is, then there is no greater gift than the invitation to be close to him to be part of his family, to be part of his inner circle, to be a disciple of him, to be one of the people through which he is enacting his plans and purposes in the world, to be his hands and feet. I mean, what a privilege to be his son or his daughter, his family, his heir. So it's just the sort of like cosmic, like you're just, you just don't have the eyes to see what is in front of you. Pearls before swine kind of a thing. But related to that, related to that, the reason he hates this lukewarmness is because he loves you. He loves you so much and he knows that this kind of distance from him, it harms you. It harms you. In fact, every, I mean, even the ones that we don't understand and when, whenever we're like, we're reading them and we're like, man, why would God command like this thing either to do or not to do as a sin? The answer is always for your good. And if you haven't, if you're wrestling and you, and you haven't gotten to the point where you can even conceptualize how that could possibly be, I think you haven't thought deeply enough about it yet. God is not arbitrary in the things that he defines as do this, don't do this. It is always for the good of those he loves. And so the idea that you would keep a distance from Jesus, keep a distance from the God of the universe, is to distance yourself from the source of every bit of goodness and life and beauty and truth and flourishing that you could encounter. So God isn't just angry like, oh yeah, they, oh, they don't want me, okay. No, it, it's, it's that he longs for the best for you and he knows there is no place you're gonna get that except right next to him. Following closely, following right by his side. Following at a distance, half-heartedly, harms you, and he hates that. He hates that. And so there's a question, an applicational question right here in the example of Peter, and all of this story is just kind of expositing that phrase kind of him following at a distance. But where and why are you tempted to follow him at a distance? If you're a follower of Jesus, I assume that you've made some kind of commitment. Yes, I believe these things about him. I confess with my mouth. I believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord. I follow him. I'm a Christian. Uh, I believe all these wonderful things about him. I think he's worth following. But I know, because I don't think it's true for any human on this planet, that there are areas, there are areas where you are, there's a distance that you've allowed to creep in. 
You've said, yes, Jesus, I want you, but I don't want your say over X, Y, or Z. The reality is that Jesus tells us what to do with all of the things that are most precious and sensitive to us. If you read the pages of the Bible, if you give it an honest look, you can't help but miss. Jesus tells you what to do with your money. Not a not in specific detail, granular detail, but he tells you, you do not get to handle your money the way that other people do when you're in my kingdom. I have a vision for this. I have a vision for the stewardship of your money, the generosity of your money that is different, that is different than what you are just going to naturally assume on your own. Jesus tells you what to do with your body. He tells you to cherish your body. He tells you that it is fearfully and wonderfully made. He tells you that it is full of dignity and worth. He tells you that it is meant to be cared for and cherished. He tells you what you can and cannot put into it, what might harm it, what might render it useless for the purposes that he's called you for. Jesus has plans and purposes for your sexuality. He does not just say, do whatever you want, laissez-faire. He has a specific vision tied to his creational goodness around what humans are for and how human life is created and how families flourish and how children grow up in safe and protected and nourished environments. And so, excuse me, so many of us are so reticent. And with a stinking smartphone, it has never been easier to carve out a little fantasy world where we can totally just, you know, be off in our own sexual fantasy land without any, like, you know, who is this really harming? Who's this impacting? And you forget, you clear your history, you forget about it, whatever else. Say, Jesus, you can have, you can have all this stuff, but you cannot have this. You cannot have this. Jesus tells us what to do with our power where we have it, in our jobs, in our communities, in our families, in our cities. He says, you use your power and your privilege, however much you have, you use it differently when you're one of mine. You don't get to use it like the rest of the world will. I have a different way of doing things. Jesus says, when you're my disciple, you don't treat your enemies like other people do either. You don't get to just discard people. You don't get to hate people, even. Even down to the intimate matters of your heart, you don't get to just do what comes naturally and easy to you. I have a different way. I have a different way. Which, of course, is connected to when you're a disciple of Jesus, and you've tasted his forgiveness, you don't get to not be a forgiving person. To be his disciple, to taste what he has given us, the, the cosmic, endless forgiveness he's given us is to turn around and be one who extends it 70 times, seven times to those who have, who've harmed us. And of course, you, have to, you always have to caveat this by saying there are, there are, there's a difference between forgiveness and just willfully opening yourself up to ongoing abuse. I hope that's clear. But nonetheless, to forgive, to forgive is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to take the grace we've received and be conduits of that grace, images of that grace toward other people. We don't get to hold grudges the way that the world does. 
This is just a few things, a few things that seem to me to be especially sort of, sort of pinpointed in our, in our day right now and even in my own life and heart. Where are you tempted to follow Jesus at a distance? Yes, I want you, but I'm not going to get too close on this particular point or that. Reality is, each of those things have their ways in which, if we are going to follow Jesus, it's going to entail some degree of discomfort, and probably more than discomfort, some degree of suffering, and on some of them, more than suffering, some degree of sort of actual uh, ostracism from some of the people that we love and care for. There's cost to following Jesus in our distinct ways, in our distinct time, but in some sense, no different than what Peter is experiencing right here. If he's going to follow Jesus closely in this moment, it's going to mean his death too. It's going to mean his suffering too. It's always the case for the followers of the suffering servant, the Jesus who died for us. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world, he says. But... If Jesus rose from the dead, if Jesus rose from the dead, if that happened, if we're not just making stuff up and we're not just singing kind of happy fairy tales every time we come here, if it really happened, if Jesus Christ was really crucified and he really did take his life up again and walk out of that tomb, then we can genuinely trust that any present suffering, any suffering, whatever it is, no matter how grotesque, no matter how easy, relatively minor, any suffering that we encounter will pair in absolute comparison to the perfect goodness, the perfect beauty, the perfect justice that he is bringing to those who trust him. You might not experience it now. You might not experience it in this life at all, but one day you will experience it in a life that will never end in glory. And if that is true, then the best place, no matter what it costs you to be in the here and now, is close to him. It just is. There's nowhere else to go. So listen again to what happened to Peter as he's following at a distance. So as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. That's an interesting answer. What is she accusing him of here? I think if we could get a little bit more specific, she's accusing him of intimacy. You were with him. You were with him. You were intimate with this Jesus. And Peter's strategy here to deny is to avoid the controversy. He's being avoidant. He just tries to sidestep the question and claim ignorance. You see that? Like, I, I don't, he doesn't deny it explicitly. He just says, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. It's almost like, huh? Well, I don't, didn't quite catch that. Bold move. Let's see if it pays off. So Peter says, I don't, I, I don't understand the question. Of course, this is a form of denial. And then he gets a little bit more distance. You see that? He physically removes himself. He goes out to the gate He goes out into the gateway, and then the rooster crowed. Okay. Poetic God, 
poetic God as you've organized this moment. So then the servant girl saw him again. So he, Peter kind of leaves the fire with the soldiers. He goes out of the gate. He's kind of outside. And she, still, she sees he's still there. He's like, still see you. Still see you over there. And she began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. This claim, you are one of them. Look what she's saying now, subtly, if you just pay really close attention. She's talking about his relationship to the other disciples. She's talking about his relationship to the community. You are one of them. She accuses him of being one of the brothers of this intimate mix of disciples who's following Jesus. And in this denial, Peter's actually severing his association with his brothers who've been following after Jesus. Well, no, 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 I'm not one of them. I'm not one of those group. Not one of those guys. Second denial. And then after a little while longer, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. And one of the other gospels tells us uh, that um, how they recognized him was because of his dialect, which was notably different from the Judean dialect. Uh, so where, where Peter's from, he has a dialect that pro- it's almost like an American Southern accent or something. You're like, oh, you're not from around here. You're not from around here. You're one of those Galileans. Jesus was from Galilee. Jesus probably had the same accent. We see what's going on. And I think in this, this accusation, you're a Galilean. What that speaks to also is Jesus is the duration of Peter's discipleship to Jesus. Peter was one of the ones that went all the way back to the very beginning. In fact, Peter was the first disciple that Jesus called. You're a Galilean. You've been with him from the very beginning of his ministry. And a third denial. A third denial. Third denial comes, and I think what we see here is that that following at a distance, hedging your bets, trying to be close but not too close, trying to be part of this thing, but uh, I don't know if I really want to embrace everything that Jesus has to say to me it inevitably leads to greater and greater distance. I think that's true. I'm extrapolating from this text, of course, but I think that's true. I think the second that we start consciously allowing this space to creep in where we say, yeah, but I'm just, I'm just gonna kinda, I'm just gonna kinda get a little bit of distance. The trajectory is almost never back towards him. It's always further and further and further and further. So it was with Peter. The plea again is to come close, as close as you can possibly muster to this Jesus. Well, that's Peter following at a distance. Then what happens? Well, the end of it tells us, verse 72, the rooster crows a second time. And it's at that moment Mark says that Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him. It's just quoting what Jesus said earlier in Mark's gospel. Before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. The night was just on the verge of turning into day. And just as Jesus said, Peter denies him three times. Not just a one-off, not just a twice-off, but three times. I'm not with him. I'm not with them. No. But the last phrase, the last sentence, this is where things turn for Peter. 
tells us that he broke down and wept. You know, this is the very last time we see Peter in the gospel according to Mark. This is, this is Peter, the end of Peter's story. So if this was like a, a film or whatever, we would never see the actor playing Peter ever again. This is, this is the end. This is the end of Peter's story here in this book. We're left with a cliffhanger here. So we're kind of left to interpret what, what, is, what do these tears mean that he broke down? That could mean literally that he threw himself onto the ground and is just sobbing in grief over what he's realized he's done in the way that he's... He's fulfilled what Jesus said, tragically. Um, I think, I think because we do see Peter, we do pick up Peter's story, and as I assume everyone in here knows, Peter did come back. He did come back to his king. He did come back in repentance. I think what we see here is just the first glimmer of repentance. This is, these, these tears are the, the beginning of a new trajectory for Peter. He is crying, I think, probably in repentance. It's not just grief. Grief is fine. Grief is appropriate in this situation, but it's not just to be sad, but it's to turn. It's to turn back to this Jesus, to come back to him. So he's crying, and that's where we leave him. But I think there's something, there's something subtle here too in this rooster crowing, in the day turning, this idea. Because what, what we see here is that the rooster crowing literally means, as you know, the day is going to turn. This is, there is a new day coming for Peter. This day that's turning as the rooster crows, this is the day in which the Son of God is going to be crucified. It's turning into Good Friday, where Jesus is going to pay the price for Peter's denial. He's going to accomplish and secure forgiveness for Peter's failure. No, it's interesting. One commentator I read uh, named, named David Garland wrote, Peter thought he would die for Jesus, but what he really needed is Jesus to die for him, which is exactly what's about to happen. So I want to I leave this story and fast forward. We even referenced this a few weeks ago, but I want to look at it just a little bit more closely to another story, to another day that's recorded in John chapter 21. Verse 7 says this, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. That when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment and he, for, for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. So this is days after Jesus is raised from the dead. The disciples hadn't seen him yet. And there's this, there's, Jesus appears, and the disciple of whom Jesus loved is probably John. He says, Peter, look, it's the Lord. And you just have to imagine, after all of this, G Peter's betrayal, he, he, he's he, so he argues with Jesus, I'm never going to betray you, first of all, and then he just, he does the thing, he does abandon Jesus, he does walk away, and he's probably like in so much shame, we see the tears here, but you just have to imagine the guilt and the weight and the sadness of all of this that Peter's carrying for days now. And then John tells him, hey, there he is. It's Jesus. 
And you could imagine two reactions from Peter in this moment. Probably the most human, the most natural reaction for most of us would be to, to hide, to run away, to say, well, what? if he wants anything to do with me, it's probably not good. It's probably not good. But Peter has the opposite reaction. He heard that it was the Lord. He threw himself into the sea and he swims out to Jesus. He swims out to Jesus. Why didn't Peter run the other way? Why does he run into the arms of Jesus? The only possible answer is that he by now knew the gracious heart of his Lord. He knew no matter how deep his failure ran, the grace of this Jesus ran deeper. And he goes to find out. And the the story continues on, but we jump ahead to verse 15. It says that they all ate breakfast together. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, they get this private moment, Simon, it's Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John adds this little parenthetical note here. He says, this he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. So what is this scene? I think fundamentally it's a scene of grace. Why, why, this, why does he make G- Peter affirm his love for him three times? You see that? He's, he's, he's reinstating Peter in this moment. He's papering back over the three denials with three affirmations of love. You denied me three times, Peter. Do you love me? Yes, I do, Lord. I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I do, Lord. I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I do, Lord. I love you. And in this moment when he's saying, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, he's, he's reinstating Peter in this central role of leadership in his church. Peter was, played this unique role in the history of the church as this kind of leader among the leaders of the early church. He's saying, you're back in. You betrayed me in my moment of deepest, darkest need, Peter. Feed my sheep. You're who I want. You are who I want to lead this thing. You're not disqualified. You're not done. I'm not finished with you. Stories will be told in the year 2023 in Portland, Oregon. They will be talking about your faithfulness. Again, Peter. So there was a new day of grace. And if we were to continue on, which we will, the one more story, what we see is that 
in tasting that grace after your deepest failure, there is a new power that was not there otherwise. Once you've tasted the, the loving goodness, the character of Jesus's commitment to you, everything changes. We skip ahead to the book of Acts, chapter five. Acts is just this, this, the history of the earliest church, the first 30 years or so of when the church began. And in Acts chapter five, verse 27, it says, when they had brought them, they set them before the council. Now, here's Peter himself before the council as Jesus was. And the high priest questioned them. This is Peter and John. He said, we strictly charged you not to teach in Jesus' name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Do you see it? Peter gets another trial, multiple actually, if you read through Acts. Another chance to be threatened with suffering and death for his Jesus. And this time, he says, what can we do but obey God? Where else is there to go? Why? Why? What changed between this and what we're seeing here in Mark chapter 14? say at least three things. First, Peter saw the resurrected Lord. He saw this is really true. Before Jesus died and was raised, maybe Peter still had lingering doubts that I don't know if this thing is real. Are we sure we're back in the right horse here? Is, is this the right plan? Is this Jesus really who he says he is? Maybe there was doubt. On the other side of the resurrection, when he sees Thomas put his fingers in Jesus' side, when he eats breakfast with him, when he hugs him and embraces him, when he sees Jesus performing more miracles, when he sees Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, Peter knows. Peter knows. And the whole history of world history, uh, to me, is evidence, is evidence. There is no way to account for what has happened over the last 2,000 years if Jesus did not really raise from the dead. We too can have confidence this is really, really true. Peter saw the Lord, it was true. But Peter also saw the extent of his weakness. Peter's always so brash in the Gospels. He's always so sort of like quick to jump in, quick to answer wrongly, quick to do the wrong thing. You just, I imagine Peter as this very headstrong, self-confident person. Peter had to be broken. Peter had to be broken. And I can't imagine a moment more breaking than this one that Jesus experienced, or that Peter experienced outside of Jesus' trial. But Peter came face to face with his weakness. When the chips were down, he did fall. He did walk away. He was weak. He did not have the strength to remain faithful to the end. He was not ready to die for Jesus. Peter recognized he really was in need. He really was weak. He did not have the resources in and of himself to do what needed to be done. But there's one more thing that Peter saw. Peter saw the forgiving grace of this Lord. 
he saw that this Jesus wasn't just raised, but he was good. He was just and he was full of love and mercy and forgiveness that he could just know instinctually when Jesus was back in his presence, he could run to him with all of his failure, swimming out to him and sopping wet, give, embrace this Jesus. He probably didn't know that Jesus would be so gracious, in fact, as to reinstate him into everything that Peter thought he had lost out on, but that was the case too. So Peter not only saw how weak he was, but he saw just how sufficient Jesus' forgiveness was in the face of that weakness. It was really true. He was really in need, but Jesus was really good. And to all of us, I would just say this. He's these things for you too. He really is the resurrected Son of God. He walked out of the tomb. He's alive. He's at the right hand of the Father. He is coming back. He is coming back, and he's left us work to do in the meantime. We are all really weak. None of us have in and of ourselves what is sufficient to follow him with perfect goodness. We don't have in and of ourselves the ability to bring about all the things in the world he might want us to or we might want to. We're going to fail one another. We're going to fail ourselves. We're going to fail our children. We're going to fail our spouses. We're going to fail our friends. We're going to fail those our enemies. We're going to fail our city. We're going to fail what you name it. We're going to fail. We are in such need of a savior, of forgiveness, of supernatural power. And you, you are the recipient of it if you want it. He's really that forgiving. He died to forgive the sins of the whole world that any who would come to him would be forgiven, would be welcomed back in with a full open embrace. There is nothing you can do. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God if you'll receive it. So I don't know if you have been broken in this way. Uh, it's, it's coming if it hasn't yet. Uh, it's, it probably happens for all of us, many, many times. For some of us, if we have the eyes to see it, it probably happens daily. Um, that's a good thing, because every time, it's an opportunity to come running back into the loving, gracious, forgiving, good arms of this Jesus, amen? So let's do that, Door of Hope. Let's pray.